Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Listen now for God's word to you. At that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus and said, Go, get away from here, because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Look, I'm throwing out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. However, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often I have wanted to gather your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want that. Look, your house is abandoned, I tell you. You won't see me until the, day, the time comes when you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So my second semester at Princeton Seminary, I took a class that was team taught by these two really well-loved professors. They were among some of the highest regarded professors among the student body. Uh, They were known for being compassionate with their students, but also really zealous in the things that they believed in. They really believed in the causes they believed in, wanted to instill that same sort of passion in their students. Uh, So there were 70 people in this class, and so just as a point of reference, that's about the size of a normal, like, prerequisite gen ed class at Princeton Seminary, Uh, all the classes you have to take to get out of the way before you can take the ones you really want to take. It just speaks to how well-loved and how sought after these two uh, professors were. And so we met together every Tuesday from 2 in the afternoon until 5 in the evening. The first two hours of the class were lectures in the large lecture hall. And then the the final hour was what was known as uh, precepts. And so precepts were just basically these small groups, 12 to 15 students, that allowed for more conversations about the things we were discussing in class. And and normally the ones, the people who were responsible for running the the precepts were the PhD students. Like this was a way for them to earn their stripes. This was like trial by fire, having to work with all the masters of divinity students. Um, but this class was so large that the two professors ended up having to take two of those precepts. And so I ended up in one of the precepts that was run by one of these professors. And I was incredibly intimidated by this. Like I respected this professor and I wanted to impress him. And he was running my precept. And so... Uh, That meant that he was also responsible for grading my midterm and my final paper. Um, So I remember writing my final paper. I sat there for weeks trying to figure out what I was going to write, trying to figure out my thesis statement. The the blinking cursor on the Word document really taunted me. Um, And finally, I got something written down. I handed it in, and I trusted in my professor's mercy. A couple weeks later, it was sent back to me electronically. I scrolled to the bottom of the Word document, and There was my grade along with this comment from my professor. He said, it's a pretty good paper, although I'm not really sure what it was about. Um, (laughs) Oops. Um, The most gracious part about that whole thing for me was that he still allowed me to pass with a pretty decent grade. Um, As we enter into this gospel lesson for this morning, you might be feeling a little bit like my seminary professor, wondering what in the world I just read. What is that passage all about? We have a lot going on here. It's only five short verses. We have the Pharisees coming to Jesus, Jesus calling Herod a fox. He's crying over the city of Jerusalem. He's calling himself a mother hen. What in the world is going on in this passage? It's a nice passage, but what's it all about? 
What's the, the thread that holds it together? What's the, the thesis statement of this passage? The story takes place in the midst of this large narrative shift in the Gospel of Luke. And that narrative shift begins all the way back in Luke chapter 9, the end of Luke chapter 9, where it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And that sounds like a really overly spiritual phrase, right? That Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. But all that means is that Jesus is setting his entire life, his entire purpose, all that he is to go to the city of Jerusalem. And this happens in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. That Jesus ministers and works among the people of Galilee, where Nazareth is, where Capernaum is. And then there's a shift that takes place where Jesus decides to head towards Jerusalem. In some of the other Gospels, it's a pretty quick decision. He decides, and then he ends up there. But in the Gospel of Luke, it's from chapter 9 all the way through the end of chapter 19 that Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. But it leaves me with a a nagging question. Why does Jesus decide to go to Jerusalem? Why does he decide to go to a city where he seems to have a sense of what awaits him there? that suffering and death await him there. Why does he go there? He weeps over the city in this passage. You know, Jerusalem was supposed to be a city that embodied God's good intentions for the world, at least within the the biblical narrative. A city where the the poor were cared for, a city where the the vulnerable and the weak, the widows and the orphans, the, the consummate outsiders, the consummate vulnerable in that society were cared for, where there was supposed to be justice within the city gate, The city gate was the place where the the courts were held in the ancient world. That Jerusalem was supposed to be this sort of place. And yet so often Jerusalem was not that. It was a place where the needy and the poor were oppressed. It was a a place where the the poor were sold for a bribe and a pair of sandals, to paraphrase the prophet Amos. It was a a place that that did not reflect the things that God desired. In fact, it was a place that when the prophets and other people came and and called them to be who they were called to be, often killed or rejected those people. People like Jesus. So why does Jesus head towards Jerusalem? Why does he go there knowing that there is a, a strong chance, a likely chance, almost certain chance, the city is going to reject his message? Why not stay in Galilee, settle down, write your memoirs, write down all of your wisdom so we can know exactly what you think and not have it filtered through four different witnesses? Why head towards Jerusalem? Because already, he hasn't even gotten there yet, and already there is a threat to Jesus' safety. The people in that crowd that surround him are already very concerned about his well-being. And that concern comes from a sort of unlikely source, if you spent any time in the church, Uh, I said this last week, and it bears repeating once again here this morning, uh, that the Pharisees are not the mustache-twirling villains that they have been made out to be throughout much of Christian history and interpretation. Uh, The Pharisees are the precursors to rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that continues to survive till this day. Um, They were the the constant debate partners with Jesus, debating about what it meant to be faithful to God. And um, yes, some of the Pharisees did reject Jesus, but I, I think we should understand the complexity of that relationship, that wrestling with, debating with what it means to be faithful to God, that's a necessary and healthy part of faith. And so they come to him because Herod is looking for Jesus, trying to kill him. So just like last week at our outdoor picnic, 
this is Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great is the, the Herod. There's six Herods in the Bible. Um, will the real Herod please stand up? Um, so this, this is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. And apparently the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because one scholar describes Herod Antipas in this way. He was a petty tyrant with a touch of megalomania, paranoid, callous, in cahoots with the Romans, religious, but in a conniving way, rich and often cruel. It's quite the description of somebody, right? Uh, I don't know how you want to be described, uh, but that's the way that, that Herod Antipas was uh, described. And he was notoriously immoral in the Bible. So the story that he's really known for is, the, is that he uh, took his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, as his own. He made him divorce. When they got divorced, he took that, his sister-in-law as, as his wife. And interestingly enough, her name was Herodias. Um, so he took her as his wife. And John the baptizer hears about this, calls out Herod Antipas for it. And so Herod has him thrown in jail. But Herod doesn't want to kill John because he still has like a shred of conscience and he doesn't want to kill a prophet. Uh, that is until his birthday party. He throws this lavish birthday party for himself. This is all in the Gospels, by the way. You can look all this up. Um, I'm not making any of this up. So he throws this lavish birthday party for himself, and uh, his niece-slash-stepdaughter comes out and dances seductively for him. Yeah, he's a mega creep. And he's, <laughs> and he's so overcome with lust that he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And so she goes back to her mother, Herodias, and, sa- and then she comes back to Herod and says, I want the head of John the baptizer on a platter. Um, and Herod doesn't want to kill John, but even more than that, he doesn't want to lose face in front of all of his birthday party guests, and so John uh, is executed. One prophet out of the way, and now he's looking for Jesus. And the Pharisees are concerned. They say, Jesus, get out of here because Herod is looking for you. But, I think, but then I, in what I think is one of Jesus' best quippy comeback responses, he says, go tell that fox for me. Herod is a fox. He's a, he's a destroyer. He's someone under the, who under the cover of darkness preys on the weak and the vulnerable. He's, he's someone who uses religion not as a source of life and building other people up, but as a way of controlling other people. He's the exact antithesis, the exact opposite of everything that Jesus stands for. And Herod thinks that by his efforts for power and domination and control that he can intimidate prophets like Jesus and like John. The problem is, is that prophets like Jesus and John are not easily moved, not easily afraid of people like Herod. Go tell that fox for me, Jesus says. Here, go get a a piece of paper and a pen. Write it down. I want you to make sure you get my message just right. Go tell that fox for me that today and tomorrow I'm performing cures and then I'm continuing on my way to Jerusalem. I'm going to continue on the things that God has called me to do, Jesus says. And Herod can't stop me. Some little thin-skinned megalomaniac pretender king can't stop Jesus from doing what he's called to do. I'm going to keep on healing those who are broken and hurting. I'm going to keep on welcoming those who are outcasts and sinners around the table. I'm going to keep on announcing the kingdom of God, the reign of justice that is for all people. Go tell that fox for me, Jesus says. And it starts to answer that nagging question that's in my mind and in my heart as I read through the gospel story of why does Jesus go to Jerusalem? 
Because nothing is going to stop Jesus from doing what he's called to do. Not Herod, not a city that has a a history of rejecting his message. Jesus is going to keep on going, keep on showing love. That perhaps it might be that Jerusalem will accept his message. Perhaps it might be that Jerusalem will not be a place of violence. Perhaps it might be that Jerusalem will be a place of equity and, and justice for all people. Perhaps it may still be. And Jesus keeps on going. And that word, perhaps, is one that maybe we most need to hear right now. Um, at the risk of wading too deeply into a potentially controversial issue, I, I also feel an immense pastoral responsibility this morning to address this, that I know that for many of you, uh, the Supreme Court decision of last week has weighed heavily on your minds and in your hearts that many of you are angry and, and frustrated and confused and not really sure where to go. And so whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, um, I think we can look past that, those sorts of labels to see perhaps the bigger picture of what's going on here, Um, that this decision affects women in an an enormous way. Um, It is a loss of bodily autonomy, um, and that is, for me, easily it's thrown around as a a political idea, right? But for me, it's a theological one. Um, In the uh, Book of Order, which I know none of you don't spend any time reading, um, (laughs) but there is some good stuff in there. Um, It says that God alone is Lord of the conscience, that we have moral agency over our own lives and our own bodies, um, that they are not beholden to the church or to a theological system or to the government, that we have agency over our own bodies. Um, And I know that for many many women across the nation, this is a loss of very necessary and life-saving health care. And I also think about the children who are being born. I think about that as a, a parent of a recently born child. Um, I think about how the session of this church was gracious enough to allow me four weeks off to spend time with my daughter after she was born. I'm incredibly grateful for all of that and how necessary that is for bonding and for all of those sorts of things. And, um, but I also know that it's not a requirement that anyone has to follow, that it's not required that anyone get time off when they have a child. And I think about that, I think about uh, the, the lack of health care, I think about the fact that just a month or so ago, we, we grieved over a, a school shooting, uh, which has become an unfortunate trend in our society. I, I think about all of that, and I, I think about how this decision has created stress and fear for those who might, who might also have their own rights taken away. I think about our LGBTQ sisters and brothers who Um, Now there's this discussion about are their rights going to be taken away? Is their ability to pursue life and love and happiness, is that going to be stripped of them as well? And I think about how this is a decision, another example of a certain segment of Christianity who thinks that their way is the only way and it's being forced on everybody else. If you're angry right now, sad, frustrated, disheartened, I get all of that. There's a quote that I've been reflecting on over the last week and a half or so, a famous quote from Martin Luther King, and I might paraphrase it just a little bit. He says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think that even Martin Luther King would agree that it bends towards justice because there are people who are willing to bend it that way. 
that we can say love wins because we're willing to fight for love. We're willing to stand up for those who are excluded or harmed, that it bends towards justice because we bend it that way. And maybe that's the answer to why Jesus goes to Jerusalem is because he's someone who continues to bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice. And I know things are hard right now. We might be disheartened. We might be angry. We might not be sure exactly how we're supposed to feel in this moment. But what I am resolved to do is to do what Jesus did in this story. It's to keep on going. It's to keep on standing up for love. It's to keep on welcoming all people around this table that no one is excluded. It's to keep on standing up for those who might have their rights denied to them. It's to keep on going. It's to keep on bending the arc of the moral universe towards justice and love and inclusivity. I know we might be disheartened right now, but I'm resolved to keep on going. Keep on going to keep on bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice and love and inclusivity. Thanks be to God. Amen.